This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Everybody hates gridlock. Political gridlock is bad, right? Well, it may be bad, it may be good. What it shouldn't be is a surprise. Nathan Gonzalez, our elections analyst at CQ Roll Call, and a good friend and the publisher of Inside Elections, uh, has been doing some reporting and some analyzing about the situation, about our partisan situation, and why Congress seems to be in thrall to gridlock. And we're going to talk about that uh, in today's podcast. Nathan, welcome. Thank you for having me once again. I must not be hurting ratings too much. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. You know, the the verdict is not quite in yet. We'll see after this podcast. Uh, but you know, you you never know. Um, we'll 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 you know. It's too as as you elections analysts like to say. It's too soon to tell. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Pressure's on. Pressure's on. Um, so yeah, I I want to talk about why we shouldn't be surprised that uh, that Congress is so wrapped up in. Uh, partisan votes that very few people seem to cross the aisle, particularly on on floor votes or or major legislation. Um, before we get to that, though, um, we're you know we are now you know a, a couple of months into the new administration, the new Congress, and as we're getting into this stage in the cycle, we tend to like look at different uh, trends that are happening and so forth. What to you, uh, from your perch, uh, what's what's some of the more interesting political stories? Uh, that have sort of caught your eye lately? You know, CPAC had uh, a lot of different sort of stories that came out of it, narratives. One of the things that I thought was most interesting was uh, leader Kevin McCarthy uh, you know, declaring that Republicans were going to win back the House. He bet his house, right? He, he said he would wager his own personal house that they'll retake the House. So if anybody wants a, a home in Bakersfield or whatever. Which I'm sure the, the market is very hot in Bakersfield. Well, in the summer, it actually is incredibly hot there. But um it's not, uh, he is not, that, that is not a, a bad bet. <laughs> and, I, and I would even maybe argue that history overwhelmingly, you know, is, is on Republican side. And that's why he was willing to go far out. I mean, I, I've gone back and looked at, um, you know, in 19 of the last 21 midterm elections, the president's party has lost seats. Um, the average seat loss in those 19 elections is 33 seats. Republicans need five um, that's not to count redistricting, which just from redistricting alone and looking at where uh, the two parties are in control of drawing lines, they might be able to to pick up five seats just from that. And so I, you know, just based on history and redistricting, it's probably a disappointment if Republicans uh, don't win back the House, uh, you know, disappointment for the GOP. So I, I know, and, and I liked it, that, that sort of comment because it focuses on, we have some elections in 2022. It's not just about whether President Donald J. Trump is going to run in 2024. Right. Yeah, and I one of the things that uh, is is particularly striking about this uh, this current situation we're in is that, the, I mean, the margins are incredibly close. I mean, Joe Biden won the presidency by, uh, you know, a comfortable margin, 7 million votes and a majority. And, um, you know, the Senate is equally divided. That could go either way uh, at a 50-50 uh, margin currently. 
And the House, I mean, you know, Nancy Pelosi, as you point out in your in your uh, analysis about gridlock, the, you know, she started out with 30-plus seats in the majority, and now she's down to uh, less than a handful, and she's probably going to lose a couple more when people start getting confirmed uh, to different uh, cabinet posts like Deb Holland and in New Mexico and Marsha Fudge in Ohio. Um, I mean, those are Democratic seats, but you know, every every vote counts now at at this point. Um, and so the margins are what they are. And what we've seen so far is pretty much party line voting in this in this new Congress. Um, and one of the, like, let's talk about where you came in on on your analysis here, which is like looking at the presidential votes in the House. Uh, we'll talk. We'll talk about the Senate too, but the House is really interesting because it's just so it, it's so striking. Um, that what 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 went on? Why should we not be surprised at gridlock? Yeah, well, I think we have to start from what what I think is one of the most one of the biggest criticisms of Capitol Hill and the members on the Hill is gridlock. Why don't they just get something done? Why don't they just work in a bipartisan way? And 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 it's the and it's blaming the politicians. And I think really voters are at least as much to blame for the lack of bipartisanship on Capitol Hill, because when we look at the congressional districts that these members are representing, they are largely voting in line with the partisanship of their district. Um, Thanks to the hard work of daily co-selections, which every four years crunches these numbers, they're usually the first to crunch the presidential numbers by congressional district. We know you know, whether Trump or Biden won all four, you know, which uh, which districts they won. And when you break it down, there are only 16 House members that are mismatched, meaning they, they are of one party, but the, uh, but the presidential candidate of the other party uh, did won their district. And so when you think about 16 out of 435, you know, less than 4% of the House, there you just have, you know, 96% of the House that doesn't feel the cross pressure of their district to either vote with a policy proposal of the of the other party or to compromise because they're already you know largely in line with that partisanship. And the this this breakdown again this is sort of striking. I mean you, you mentioned there are 16 it's seven democrats, it's nine republicans and that's uh, a sh- there, there was a sh- shrinking there from in 2016 too. Right, in 2016 there were I believe 33 um 33 members uh, divided, you know, some in Trump you know, Trump Democrats or uh, or Clinton Republicans. Um, so that that number is is shrinking, and we're seeing that uh, the lack of ticket splitting that is that is a trend. Um, mm-hmm. Looking, let's look at the last two presidential cycles and Senate races. So there have been sixty nine Senate races over the course of the twenty 2020 twenty and twenty sixteen elections. All but one of them voted the state voted for the same party for president as it did for the U.S. Senate, and that was Susan Collins re-election victory in Maine in 2020. And so this lack of ticket splitting, and, and now uh, there are only six U.S. senators that are mismatched, you know, between the partisanship of their state and the most recent presidential results. So that explains you know, why we see so few senators. We're constantly going to Joe Manchin because he's one of those six senators who, you know, is a, he's, he's a Democrat who represents a state that Republicans have won in the last uh, presidential races. Oh, and I, I just uh, uh, pulled it up. It was so sixteen in this past uh, uh, sixteen mismatched elections in this past presidential election. There were thirty five in twenty sixteen, 
And then in 2008, there were 83 mismatched districts uh, as a result of that election, which uh, does make sense, too, because Democrats actually grew their House majority that year, and then they lost their uh, they lost the majority in the following uh, election in 2010 because they just had so many people representing districts that you know that that had voted for uh, John McCain at that point. And, and I think this this district by district analysis also kind of refutes one of the narratives that we heard post November 3rd from Republicans, where they're saying, "Well, I don't I don't understand how." Trump, you know, lost the presidential race, but Republicans did so well in the House. I mean, it ended up that they gained 12 House seats. And it's actually pretty easily explainable in that in 2018, in the midterm elections, Democrats pushed into Trump territory. They won some Trump districts because the full Trump coalition didn't turn out. And in 2020, when the full Trump coalition did turn out, they gained some of that territory back. And we kind of got back to equal uh, when you looked at the total number of districts that Trump and Biden won, it was very close to the to the the partisanship of the House, you know, that we have in the 117th Congress. So they're really it's not a conspiracy or shenanigans. It was almost 2020 was a correction on the House side based on the overperformance of Democrats in 2018. And and also what's worth noting too is just that you know Democrats you know really do run up the score in in blue states because you know they they win overwhelmingly in places like California uh, at, at, the, at the presidential level uh, they, they win you know big in New York uh, and big in Illinois and places like that and then in the you know the the, the heavily red you know parts of the you know there there are more smaller Republican states but they do add up and so you know when when Joe Biden loses by you know multiple di- daily digits in Wyoming uh, and in you know the Dakotas and so forth that all adds up f- to the president in the presidential vote but it also it, it's just not as many people although it, it certainly counts for the electoral college so um so yeah and the 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 wrinkle in this too is that um, as, as you point out in in your story, we don't even know what the effect of some of these votes will be that they're taking because, you know, they're going to redistrict. We eventually, at some point, we're going to get the census numbers. Um, Ohio has already uh, gone to court to force the Census Bureau to release the numbers, even though the Census Bureau says they're not done. Um, but we're going to see a shift, as we always do. And, you know, the, a lot of the places that are are likely to grow, that are that grow their house delegations and so forth, are places like Texas, Georgia, you know, uh, Arizona, my state, uh, Florida, uh, pl- places that are are either Republican or are purple or deeply purple uh, in the case of Georgia and Arizona. Yeah, we have to remember first that we are very early in the cycle. So, you know, it seems like, oh, the COVID relief vote is going to be the top issue. And like, well, it, it might be, but we're a long way. There's a lot that's going to happen between now and November of 2022. And this analysis, this district analysis, this is what already happened. These are the districts that these members currently represent. But as you point out, we don't know what constituencies or what, uh, you know, what voters these members are going to face in 2022, because some of them, their districts could change, could change dramatically. And so we're, you know, we go toward looking at these votes, every vote, every major vote in terms of what has already happened, but uh, we don't know yet what the implications are specifically because we have to wait for these districts to be redrawn. And yeah, the other thing I was going to add is that electorally, uh, voters say they want compromise, but I think members who compromise are all usually punished uh, 
partially yes. because of this dynamic of lining up with the district. But if you're a Republican and you vote with Democrats, you're going to get a primary challenge. Or you're a Democrat that votes with Republicans, you're going to get a primary challenge. And so uh, maybe the answer is, you know, there's talk about open primaries and all that. But I, I think if voters, the more moderate voters from each party, if those are the ones who are calling for some compromise, do they actually vote in primaries? You know, because primary turnout tends to be very low, more ideological. And that's when these members these members get punished. And also, I mean, it belies where politics is on, in terms of like it, it's it relies heavily, you know, voter turnout relies very heavily on firing up your base, you know, getting people pissed off, uh, you know, like making them fear the other party. Uh, and and I'm not saying that a lot of these concerns are not legitimate. Uh, they're they're some of them are very real, um, but it's not um, it, it's not. 50, 60, 70 years ago when the union came around and said, guess what you're doing today? You're voting. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like that, that, that's like sort of the older turnout model or machine politics uh, in urban areas that, that knew how to, you know, kind of go door to door and get people to the polls. Those days are, I mean, that's, it's not to say that there isn't some, you know, uh, some of that going on. Certainly unions are responsible for a big part of the democratic turnout uh, machine, but Particularly Republicans, particularly Donald Trump, seems to be relying on firing people up. Uh, and and emotional pleas usually don't, like, people don't really get that emotional about, like, good governance. <laughs> right, 2022 will be interesting on multiple levels. And it's not just because it's part of my job to think it's interesting. Uh, but turnout, and because turnout's going to be lower than what it was. We set a record, a modern record in 2020 for turnout. It's always lower in midterm elections. But how much lower and is it disproportionate? You know, for example, you know, President Trump fired up Republicans, did a good job of getting his his folks to to the to the polls or, or got them to vote in 2020. But President Trump also fired up Democrats. He energized and unified the Democratic Party. So now that he's not in office, and in 2022 we, we know he's not going to be on the ballot, what does Democratic turnout look like? And, and that's something Democrats still have to wrestle with because the the 2020 presidential election and defeating Trump kind of glossed over the divide in the Democratic Party and the lack of unity on specific policies and strategies and tactics. And and speaking of divides in the party, I mean, we hear a lot about a Republican civil war, you know, certainly people like Liz Cheney, who had called out the president and voted uh, for his impeachment in the House. She's the third ranking uh, House Republican. She, you know, got mercilessly, you know, singled out uh, at the Conservative Political Action Committee in Orlando over the weekend. Um, you know, her her potential primary opponent, uh, who's a, who's a lawmaker in Wyoming, was there, and and people recognized him, which you know, or he claims, you know, that people recognize him. So, is is there really a civil war though, when it's only like about five or ten people <laughs> who are who are diverting on both sides? <laughs> yeah, well. I, I think the battle exists, uh, it is, but it is, it is, you're right that the numbers don't necessarily um, add up, but it's also not as far, I wouldn't go as far as uh, Florida Senator Rick Scott, who's the chairman of the NRSC, and, and declaring that, that it's over and, and everything is fine, uh, because I don't think that that's, that's the case either. What, um, what was interesting from the President, President Trump's CPAC speech was that he said, I, I'm not interested in forming another party. Um, and so that at least temporarily laid some of that to rest. But what we could see is him get involved in 2020, uh, 2022 elections, whether it's the primary or some general election stuff, 
Republicans doing well in spite of the president, not because of him, you know, based on that, the historical trends of midterms and things, but the president will take credit for it and his supporters are, will, will give him credit for Republicans doing well. And that could buoy him or boost him into a more official 2024 race. But but on the on the flip side, I mean, if he spends all of his time in in Wyoming <laughs> campaigning against Cheney, isn't that a lost opportunity to go after you know one of the Democrats uh, on uh, you know who is in a mismatch district, like somebody like Matt Cartwright, who you know he represents the Scranton Wilkes-Barre area in Pennsylvania, uh, with redistricting, Pennsylvania typically loses a seat. I mean, he could that could spell some trouble for him because that's not as densely populated an area. Um, if if they're if he's spending all of his time going after the dissidents in his own party, isn't that detract a little bit from the the goal you know for the Republicans, which is to go after vulnerable Democrats? Oh yeah, absolutely. And that was part of of Rick Scott's letter or his press release was trying to get Republicans to focus on the external threats, focus on what Democrats are going to do, focus on socialism, and that's the right. I think that's the right political strategy from particularly from a Scott. Senate Republican perspective, because when you get people to start looking at each other, Republicans look at each other and, oh, who tweeted this or who voted this way or who didn't? That's when you get the <laughs> the civil war or that at least that sideways um, that sideways energy that isn't focused on ultimately winning back the Senate and winning back the House. So. For the the longer perspective, I, I it, you know you you're a baseball fan as I am, and it sounds like in general what you're saying with with this analysis uh, is yes, you know it, it, we pay attention to the votes that are taking place right now. Yes, we look we look at recent history, but. To you, to paraphrase Mike Rizzo, the general manager for the Nationals, you also got to look at the back of the baseball card and and look at the full history of of how a player has performed and where they are. And what you've done, in addition to you know analyzing the Daily Coast stuff, is like looked at what happened in previous midterms. And truly, the the anomaly is that a a president's party does well in a midterms. There are some examples of it in two thousand two. Uh, you know, George W. Bush uh, and the Republicans got a bit of a boost. That was kind of, uh, it, that in itself was anomalous because we had just had 9-11. Um, but, it, you know, the the long-term trend, looking at the back of the baseball card for this, is that, um, you know, Republicans, whatever happens with the census and realignment, are are usually in pretty, they're in a good position next, in the next cycle. Yes, uh, Republicans... <laughs> You can argue both. The Republicans are in a good position, I think, historically and with redistricting. But we have to remember that their full coalition, kind of the coalition that they're doubling and tripling down on right now, was not enough to win the White House or win the Senate or to keep the Senate or to win the House. So they have to expand. Now, I'll, I'll be a politician and talk out of both sides of my mouth that we could see them, Republicans, do well in 2022 because Democrats lose and not necessarily Republicans win. I think parties when, you know, Democrats, if they overreach, you know, let's, let's hope that we get through 2021 or get, <laughs> well, yeah, let's hope we get through 2021. Let's, let's hope that we get past COVID in 2021. That'll leave a whole year for Republic, for Democrats to, to govern, to potentially overreach and voters to get mad and say, oh, we need some checks and balances. And it, it won't necessarily be because Republicans have opened up their tent uh, to, to lots of different types of people. It will just be in response to 
democratic overreach. But again, that that will be the reason. But Republicans will take that as a as a mandate, you know, to just keep doing what they're doing. Mandates. That's that's a topic for another time. Uh, it, it, it it seems like no matter how how big or small your victory, uh, you will always claim a mandate. Uh, then and when people start talking about when politicians start talking about, well, the people voted for this. I always get a little shudder. But that's a topic for another time. Yeah, it's just it's a uh, you have to. It's in the manual. I think when you win an election, you just you have to say it. Uh, well, Nathan, thanks for uh, walking through this with us, and uh, you know. Best of luck. I hope to I hope to see you in person, uh, and then we can do these podcasts soon, as uh, per your your uh, hope and and what I share that we can get through the pandemic uh, sooner rather than later. Sounds good. We'll see you next time.